the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome to Hour 3 on your way home. It is a delight to have in studio, as we try to do most Tuesdays, Mr. Hugh Hallman and Mr. Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe. He is a uh, civic leader and an attorney, builder of schools and educator. Lewis Hallman is uh, his son, a dear friend, and the managing director of Insight Analytics, among other things. He's talking uh, for the first couple of hours about a lot of different things, and of course the Middle East is the springboard for much of it. Uh, One of the angles I was uh, uh, speaking of had to do with the Marxist underbelly of so much of the uh, support for terrorism. And indeed, today, Black Lives Matter uh, showed themselves who they were by putting out literature and cartoons in league with and in sync with Hamas terrorists, including a particularly odious one of, uh, of, of, of a um, paraglider parachutist uh, saying that they, at Black Lives Matter, support the Hamas liberation efforts, terrorism efforts more accurately. No big surprise when you think that and remember that Black Lives Matter was founded by two self-admitted trained Marxists. A lot of conservatives are afraid to talk about political philosophy in general because political philosophy to them does mean Marxism, and so they tend to leave it aside. But uh, when you have such skilled thinkers and uh, trained political philosophers as Hugh and Lewis Hallman, it is absolutely no problem. It is an odd thing, is it not, gentlemen, that after not only the Berlin fall of 1989 and so much talk, I think errant, of course, but so much talk at the time of the end of history, uh, that we have probably more active and supportive Marxism in this country than at any time in our history, including when Tailgunner Joe was stalking the land. And not just in our universities, but in the halls of power, and not just in Washington, D.C., but throughout the state legislatures in our country and, of course, the colleges and universities. Lewis Hallman, feel free to say anything you want about any of this or anything adjunct uh, to this. Absolutely. So I think that one of the the first things that's very important to point out about all of this is that, uh, as well as Marxism, which is, as we know, the uh, economic theory uh, um, that that really stipulates that uh, uh, society would be best run uh, through a command economy, uh, through collective action and enterprise, rather than the emphasis on on individual agency. Um, th- there's another thing as well here that you you uh, when you brought up the Hamas and the BLM uh, piece of this that I think that I really want to make sure that we emphasize today, and that is anti-Westernism, yeah, right. which itself uh, is rather than an economic set of grievances, this is a historical set of grievances which pertains to. Uh, the way and the manner in which uh, Europeans, uh, uh, it is argued, ran roughshod over the globe for the last uh, 
say, 400 years or so. And then the, the various sort of streams of grievance that can, can fall from there, some legitimate, uh, some not. Um, but, but from this, um, we, we see a, a really interesting project sort of taking shape where there's this academic effort on the left as they look to uh, flagellate themselves from the sins of American history. They then create this specter of an American boogeyman, this revisionist imagined history that we have where we are the sole and unique crux of evil. And then they are able to export this ideology to not only those foes that, that are, are Marxists or communists, but those that are opposed to us ideologically all over the world, whether that's Putin's Russia with its gangsteristic or fascistic bents, whether that's China with its mix of communistic and fascistic bents, whether that's the theocracy of Iran or the, uh, the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan or any other number of causes and ideologies. Uh, it, it, it's much, much broader than just the communist issue, I would think. It, you want to weigh in on that, doctor? I, I guess if I grab a hold of my JD, my wife would tell you I'm not a doctor. Um, but the the wrapper I wanted to sort of put Lewis's major comments in in your opening ties back to your monologue in the first hour, which is really a piece that is using the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as the base to suss out and to expose the fact that we've got Americans here who are, as you noted in your opening, uh, cheering on Hamas and to talk about what it is they are as a result cheering on. Lewis points out that as a generalized notion, there's this anti-Western theme that is based on the fact that we have, uh, over the last 400 years or so, seen Western Europe and ultimately the United States grow in, in large uh, ways as economic powers that have then, quote, imposed or colonized other parts of the world. Would I sit here and uh, advocate for the kinds of terrible things that the Germans did or the, the, uh, the Dutch did in, uh, throughout Africa? Absolutely not. But that is also a straw man in the same way that people would call out what uh, Karl Marx might have written on these subjects as an example of an author who talked about alternative economic systems and say that he can easily be knocked over. They're really important philosoph philosophical points that the two concepts as two large piles of economic models, a socialism communist model or a capitalist model, and there's a lot in between. Or as Lewis is pointing out, the, the anti-Western piece. Well, what political systems then are we talking about? We are talking about a diffused system in which power is diffused to the people, I would argue, in a, in a democratic system versus those where that power is collected. The interesting thing is those who are anti-Western and anti-capitalist insist that somehow the democratic and capitalist model when merged as an example in the United States has put all of that power into a small group of people. And if you actually, in my view, tease that out, you find just the opposite. You find that it is in the democratic capitalist system where agency, as Lewis used, has been devolved to the individual and control systems exist in these communist, socialist and totalitarian regimes. That's what I think we need to be talking about as Republicans and conservatives. Our side is afraid to talk about the political philosophy that undergirds why we are successful. We've talked on this show about and frequently that 
capitalism has pulled more people out of poverty in the last 200 years than any other system on the planet. And yet the Internet is just filled with the leftist articles now trying to respond to that very point from Reddit to all kinds of discussions, whether you call it communism or socialism, all of these people have as their educational base in these United States a system that has educated them about the unfairness of capitalism and democracy in some ways and how fair some idealized notion of socialism and a control system can be. And you, you read this stuff and you just I, 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 I scratch my head the kind of idiotic logic that is buried in these. And I think at some point we need to tease out for the audience and ourselves how we see these systems working and what the differences are so that when we go into the fields of discussion and try to convert soft leftists, at least our neighbors who are screaming about the fact that Joe Biden is right and the Democratic Party is leading us to some glorious uh, new future, why the underlying premises of that march is false. Let me uh, let me ask that we do that in a moment. Let me focus on something Lewis brought up and, and, and you built off of for a moment, which is this anti-Western notion. I was giving a speech this morning on the First Amendment and uh, the modern university, today's university. And I had an old timer ask me an interesting question. I thought it was an interesting question. He said when he was growing up and went to college, um, all of his professors were liberals. So to all of them, he said, you know, you're lamenting the lack of diversity now. But he said his memory was they were all liberals. He said, what's changed? I think something has changed. I was referencing this perhaps with you gentlemen last week, but I think some point last week. The liberals of yesteryear were not anti-Western. That's what's changed. The liberals Correct. of yesteryear suffused the John Kennedy cabinet. They were your Arthur Schlesingers and your Daniel Patrick Moynihan's and your Daniel Borston's and your Samuel Elliott Morrison's and your Henry Comagers, all who voted Democrat but who loved this country and knew it was founded in 1776 and thought that we could build a more perfect union based on the principles of 1776 and 1787. One second. And... The thing that has changed is that liberal doesn't exist much anymore. That liberal would today be called a conservative, whereas today's left of center, left of center professoriate or intellectual is not a liberal. They are a leftist who actually is anti-Western. I took us to the commercial break because I know you're both popping to get out of your seats. So I'll let you do so when we come right back. They're the Hallmans and I'm Seth and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are my guests. I was just showing them a poster at California State University, Long Beach. Students protest for Palestine, days of resistance. It's a bunch of young uh, men and women in a crowd, much like perhaps you might have seen in the Negev Desert on Saturday having a peace rally, much like you would have seen on Saturday and they miss the irony because they are saying days of resistance in favor of Palestine. They have a paraglider floating down because that is now the symbol of supporting Hamas. What they miss here is that every one of those protesters would be killed by that paraglider. Exactly. In fact, as an example of sort of this leftist bent, NPR just ran a story about a young woman who was being uh, who was at the music festival where she was nearly killed and describing the horrors and they cut away and finish it describing just to get out of that, that 
people were killed. A passive sentence without saying Hamas fighters murdered hundreds of people. Some it people is, did something. Some people did something. People were killed. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, we were talking about the university and anti-Westernism and liberalism and leftism. Well, you, made a, you made a fabulous point before the break, Seth, that, that bears repeating. And it's what has changed fundamentally about our educational system and you you had you know that right on the head and it's that that the prior version of liberalism that made up the majority of the professor uh, the, the professoriate um was not anti-western and now increasingly they are and it's a it's a fascinating sort of transition as we see this so i i i wonder you know why is this happening why is it so intellectually fashionable intellectually useful you know to to move in this way i, I think there's a few things at play First of all, you have sort of the end of history phase of the 1990s where we ended the Cold War and we needed sort of a new ideological direction. And without sort of a large red dragon to slay, if I may butcher that metaphor, uh, we, we sort of lost our way and then found a more humanitarian focus for our uh, leading educational lights as they were. Um, you know, you, you could argue it that way, possibly. Um, but ultimately, what we see then is this is this fascinating feedback loop where we're looking to, like, and, and in some sense, there's a legitimate uh, uh, desire on, on behalf of this professoriate to want to see a better version of the U.S., right? Or at least to want to uh, uh, excise our historical sins, our historical grievances away. The issue, though, is that there's no there's no point at which it logically stops. Well, that's right. I mean, I almost want to question that very point, though. Do they want that? Do they want that? I mean, Ibram Kendi says you cannot be a capitalist and an anti-racist at the same time. Do they want a better version of the United States or do they want to well, so, bring so heaven on earth? You may not it? agree that it's a better version, but they at least postulate that it is. I, I I, I, I okay. think that there are very few people who are actively looking to make the world worse in their own eyes. Correct. Fair point. Uh, right. Uh, but very th- fair the point. point is, when you say to make the U.S. a better version of itself, I don't think that is true. The premise. The well, pre- we can come back to my Jonathan Haidt uh, uh, stance all, all day here, where we see that the the key uh, uh, factors animating those on the far left are. A sense but, but of harm not. reduction and fairness, and that's no one. I, I agree. No one wakes up to want to do bad. It's their divi- right. definition Even, of bad. But I don't think that they want to wake up either in too many places in the university and work on the more perfect union that was handed out in 1787. Correct. That's what I. Well, that's when I when I argue with you about a better version of the United States. I don't think they're looking for a better version of that under constitutional republican principles. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. No, no. You, well, let's okay. let's start with the premise again. Agree, Lou, that people don't wake up each morning and think, how can I make this society worse? Or at least, how do I make this society worse for myself? And that's part of the issue here. It's how do I make the society better? And I would argue implied in that, and I'll explain, for at least myself and all the people who are on my side, not those evil people who they view as evil. I will posit that I can believe that every leftist believes what they are saying and that it will improve society. The reason I want to launch a conversation on these platforms is because we have to demonstrate, having lost the college classroom, demonstrate to those listening 
how they demonstrate to the rest of them why the premises on which they're making their arguments are completely false and sand. But secondly, I don't believe they're looking to make a better union here. They're not waking up every day. How do I make the United States better? They are believing and truly believe that the only way to make the United States, that is this this geo, geopolitical mass, more successful is to seize control of the the mechanisms of power to implement their political views, which eliminates the very political bases on which we are operating. The challenge we face as a free society and have for 200 years now is that our premise is as an open society, we will allow those who disagree with the concept even of free speech to exercise it all while they are looking to exercise the power to stop others from doing so. Keep in mind, we have F the fourth rallies every summer. Exactly my point. Yeah. That we have real people in real parks chanting to eliminate the right for others to speak freely as long as they retain it for themselves because their version of the universe is the correct one. And that's what why I was going to add just a little bit of it really is the case that Karl Marx wrote this stuff and these Marxists who are trained in it believe it. Now, do they have to say communism? No. But at the fundamental point, they're anti-Western because what the West does is completely contradict in its lifestyle and in its behavior everything they believe. And it is things like that we must eliminate private property. That is not an extraordinary concept. Much of the world has people arguing for that and claiming that that's how they want to live. Well, we can also see this in the in, in the it, it goes back quite a long way in the moral supremacy of the individual in Western society, both in, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. But then you, you see it also in our governmental tradition going forward Bingo. as well. And, and we need to articulate that for people who are no longer getting this in their schools. We used to get this in grade school and high school and college. And that is now gone. And we should not then be surprised that. Young people across this country are engaging in debate on the Internet about why it is a lie that capitalism has pulled people out of poverty and it's instead socialism that really is the way in which we should go. There's a a piece on this that I I think that the right does a really terrible job with. And it's the fact that, that capitalism is what the left is able to then rest all of the current evils of the world on. And we are never challenged on that piece. The default state of the world is poverty and as, as Thomas Hobbes wrote, life is nasty, brutish, and short. You missed a couple, the, but yeah. Sure. But the, 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 the notion that is presented even in the Communist Manifesto and, and indeed by other more modern uh, uh, politicians is that poverty and inequality are the fault of capitalism, not the fact that we are limited beings in a limited world with few resources to go around in a limited amount of time. Such a big point. Let me desires. take a commercial break and have you pick up on it. Um, does at some point require us to not only wrestle with, well, it really requires the people we're talking about to wrestle with, but it requires us to explain something called human nature. And Bingo. Then, okay. We'll pick up on this when we come back. Lewis Hallman and Hugh Hallman are my guests, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leifson Show. That is a young – who is that, young David? That is a uh, – who is that? A longtime Vegas entertainer yeah. who Wayne uh, Newton. Spend, spend oh, Wayne a lot Newton of time. singing. Right. I don't know who's on trumpet, though. Oh, Bud Brisbaugh, of yeah. course, uh, also in Phoenix. Uh, Lou Holman, Lewis Holman, my guest, uh, along with Hugh. Uh, 
human nature. There is there is a requirement to engage in any of this in in imparting the notion of not only human nature but the nature of the world, which is something that I think Marx failed to overcome, but was very clear about wanting to try to overcome. We should we should also think about it. Uh, I think you're, you're raising a really good point here, but there's a, there's a large issue at play, and it's it's this effectively. It's that. Before we can discuss place settings, we need to agree that we're having a party. So and what I mean by that <laughs> is that we have a shared conception of human nature that, that is uh, uh, not shared then by quite a lot of people, many of whom are Marxists and leftists. There's the, the, the difference between a constrained sort of uh, uh, fallen nature, if you want to use the Judeo-Christian uh, 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 metaphor, uh, you could also look at Thomas Sowell's articulation of it as the uh, constrained and unconstrained nature of humanity as well. Uh, but there there are many people, Marx is chief among them, who don't believe that we have a particular nature and that our tabulas are rasa, as it were, mm-hmm. that we are blank slates that can be molded by culture and environment to be whatever is uh, uh, required of us systemically. And if you believe that, it's a lot uh, uh, easier to believe that a system can arise that is so societally transformative and so against what we would classically recognize as our own nature. That's a, exactly the place setting we need to have in order to acknowledge we're having a party. And that party is about what do we view as human nature? I think the three of us together would agree that people are self-interested, uh-huh. period. Uh-huh. Not the benevolence of the butcher, yada, yada. Right. Yada. Certainly the, 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 the Madisonian uh, that created our Constitution understood that at his core and created a system, as he expressed it in his portion of the Federalist Papers, as did his co-authors, which clearly demonstrates, as some might argue, that more, if not most of our founders, understood that nature of human beings, mm-hmm. being that we are self-interested. And as a result, we have to pit interest against interest and create a divided government in a way that each person's ambition is offset by other people's ambitions. In the real world, I think that captures it. The reason I fell in love with Madison and the concepts in a formal way, and I think you did as well, and I suspect Lewis, is that it matched with our understanding of human behavior. Why do I say that? Because from the womb, children work to get what they need for themselves without worrying about what others will immediately need. I know that from having twins. Um, (laughs) And so that is the nub of it. And yet Marx writes in his manifesto and then the whole anti-Western group, the whole communist socialist group has some notion that if only we can get it right. I literally just last week had a high-ranking person in the city of Tempe explain how troubling it is that we have politicians who are so interested as they are, we really just need philosopher kings. And if we only had the right philosopher kings, we could put them in charge, and then we wouldn't have these problems. Now, that debate went on for a couple of thousand years, and our founders said, it don't work. They had an understanding of why it didn't work. And it doesn't work because of this self-interestedness. So Marx posits something that actually wasn't in the Communist Manifesto, but summarizes. It actually mainly doesn't work because of the succession issue. Well, it doesn't work for, but I'm going to start with the easiest one, the human nature piece of. It was not in the Communist Manifesto, but it was in his critique of the Goethe program. It was a program in 1875 to push forward the communist agenda. And that's when he coined the, the, the slogan, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now, that's the highest level of communist transition, from each according to his ability. 
it means that people who have skills and ability are going to work really, really hard and create results and share those results equally among the other people around who may or may not be so uh, well off. It also acknowledges that those results will vary between people and that, the, that we have natural variance in our temperaments and capabilities. Correct. And, and it admits that. The manifesto admits that, as do all of his writings, that people are different. And yet, as Lewis noted at the opening, that he somehow thought, that, as he writes very clearly, that it was the systems that were in place that formed man's uh, character not that man had a character that ultimately formed these systems. And it is that failure to understand where human beings' nature comes from, nature and nature's God, where we get that, that created a bad concept to begin with. And I want to give a couple of examples when we come back of human nature in action right here in the state of Arizona to demonstrate why Marx and Tlaib and every one of her fellow travelers are nuts. Socialism is what socialism does. The plaintive lament of the purist that socialism has never really been tried is simply the expression of petulance and obstinacy on the part of ideologues who, convinced that they have a more profound understanding than anyone else of the world in its history, now find they have been living a huge self-deception, Irving Kristol once wrote. Isn't that brilliant? We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman are my guests. You liked that quote I ran out uh, in the last segment with so much. You asked me on the break if I would open this segment with it because you have a lot to tee off from it. It's from Irving Crystal, an essay he wrote in 1976. Not Bill, Irving. Socialism is what socialism does. The plaintiff lament of the purist that socialism has never really been tried is simply the expression of petulance and obstinacy on the part of ideologues who, convinced that they have a more profound understanding than anyone else of the world and its history, now find that they have been living a huge self-deception. Hugh Holman. This is not some old notion. Right. Just last year, I had a leader of one of our more important Jewish organizations explain to me when we were having a mild discussion about whether or not socialism or capitalism as two opposite concepts can work, she honestly said, well, that's unfair. Socialism just hasn't been tried correctly. The Soviet Union and China have just done it badly. So she apparently believes it can be done well. Lewis? So I love this argument because it shows that the person that makes it is a complete historically ignorant fool. They are deluded and they are megalomaniacally arrogant. And the reason I say that is that these societies, these challenges were, were, were massive. And the rollouts of socialism in the USSR, in China, in Korea under the Juche system, in Cambodia, and in, all, in, in a number of the other places it's been tried. Like we've seen it, Venezuela, Cuba, take your pick. It has been rolled out in every climate on the planet, by virtually every continent on the planet, in virtually every ethnic group on the planet. 
uh, emphasizing the urban core, emphasizing the rural core, emphasizing the anti-intellectuals, and to emphasizing intellectual leadership. It has been tried to death in every permutation that one can analyze. To say that it hasn't been tried correctly means only that you think that you are so personally powerful and so personally insightful and that everyone else around you is historically ignorant to the degree that all of the millions of people that have coordinated and, and tried to sincerely bring about their utopia, well, they were deluded, and you, in fact, are smarter and better than all of them. And in That fact, is the kind of political logic that a child uses. And his name was Karl Marx, because he wrote, the commun- quote, The communists, therefore, are on the one hand practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class parties of every country. That section which pushes forward all others. On the other hand, theoretically, they have over the great mass of the proletariat the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions, and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. That is to say, they know better than you do. Just put them in charge so they can reach these great goals and these great results if only we would let them do it well once. I'm reminded of my hatred here for single-system experts. This is something that we talked about a lot during COVID, uh, uh, where we have... Uh, all of the national policy, all of the national issue fall down to one single domain expert. In this case, it was epidemiologists. But we, we, we see it here where they, in their in their arrogance, they think that they and they alone can orchestrate the entirety of the society from top down. This is why at the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in uh, 1992, when, it, when an account was done, it was found that the Russian economy had three socks for every two people. <laughs> Indeed, and and one can one can also note that it had uh, fewer toilet seats than there were rear ends uh, by by a huge order of magnitude. There's a joke there that's personal. In this instance, let's pick up on Lewis's point. Here we had single subject experts during COVID telling us what we needed to do. An excellent exercise in communist totalitarian ac- uh, uh, activity. Command economy. Command economy here. And let's give one example. So my premise in the last bit was to build on the fact that we're looking at human nature. And the best example I have of human nature is children and that they are self-interested. It's not because they've worked in factories and been uh, saddled with having to uh, run uh, equipment as children to thread machines so that they could make fabric. It was because as they're running around the house, they want to gather up stuff for themselves and aren't all that good at sharing. Can't imagine why I know this example. And yet, yes, at the White House, I had one son who was just trying to make a full set of the sugar and other condiment packets and another son who gobbled all of them up. Uh, uh, but we still have them. Uh, the point is, human beings are naturally self-interested. And here we have this command economy running COVID. Our biggest organization in the state that was demanding that we all mask and behave as they were saying was none other than Banner Health. Banner Health, a charity, a 501c3 charity. Here's how charitable that organization is. It currently has net assets of $7 billion. It uh, has employees who are running the organization. Remember, it's a charity. So one would expect them to be motivated by charitable activity. And yet their CEO and president, Peter Fine, merely needs to be paid $7,972,035. But wait, He also got a bonus 
of $4,411,675. So the man got paid somewhat over $12 million. About a quarter million dollars a week. To run this charitable organization that then dictated to us how we would all behave, that we should shut down schools, that we must mask. I was in the first week of COVID, happened to be in Scottsdale at a Chamber of Commerce event with Peter Fine in his home where he continued to practice for a couple of years, dictating, why aren't you all wearing masks? I was stunned. And more important, in my view... The person who got on the radio regularly to dictate to us how we should all behave, our fellow traveler, Marjorie Bessel, remember the chief uh, officer in charge of all clinical uh, trials and who told us we must mask. She merely made $1,734,541 to tell us how to behave and got a bonus of $745,421. The point is, human beings are self-interested. Banner Health amassed billions of dollars as a result of COVID, dictated to us how we should behave. And in contrast, all those people who insist that we're undertaxed and we should give more of our money to the federal government have had that opportunity. And yet since 1996, the sum total of all of their contributions demonstrating how much they think they should give to support our democratic system because we're all under tax to make a better united states absolutely right <laughs> in order to form a more perfect union no. since 1996 63 million eight hundred eighty three thousand five hundred thirteen dollars and 88 cents that would that's service charity the, that would service the interest on the federal debt for about an hour exactly right so lewis's major point you're opening your whole concept here is we've got people running around dictating how we should all behave and yet they fail to recognize the original driver of human behavior. And Karl Marx turned his back on it entirely to create a pretend system in which he told you it's because he's so much smarter than you are. And if you'll just turn over the power to him, he will give us a glorious future. When we come back, I'm going to let uh, Lewis uh, tie all these fascies together. <laughs> you know, we probably ought to... If this were the 90s, I would have suggest we probably ought to make a series of cassette tapes and lectures um, to send around the way Newt Gingrich used to do. Uh, Lewis Holman, Hugh Holman have been my guests this hour. Hugh, the former mayor of Tempe and attorney and town civic leader. Lewis Holman, managing director of Insight Analytics. Put a bow on this for us, Lewis. Absolutely. So we spent uh, today really talking about two phenomena. We've been talking about communism and anti-westernism what are the ideological roots of both of these things and how are they shaping our world uh, in the present i want to uh, end this conversation on on communism by talking uh, uh, about where it's likely to go from here as we we saw with the collapse of the soviet union and sort of a very interesting set of policy from the chinese over the last couple of years uh, stephen kotkin uh, said once that Communism is dead, but fascism has a future. And this is not to make the point that no one is ever going to advocate for communism again, but, but really that communism is not likely to take hold in a serious and sustained way uh, in the way that it did in the USSR. And the reason for that is that communism does not work for the elites. You cannot plunder and steal the wealth of a society effectively if one is a communist as one could if one was a fascist or 
uh, some other type of, of persuasion, which is why we see the Chinese system now work the way it has over the last 20 years. We're starting to see some interesting sort of recommunization of that society as they are increasingly affected by famine. They're starting collective canteens in the countryside. That sort of activity could be we could be seeing sort of another great leap forward or, or cultural revolution type phase in Chinese history, which would be alarming. Um, more broadly, though, why, why does fascism has a, have a future when communism does not? It's because the elites then can plunder, sustain themselves, and then guide the society uh, as they move forwards. This is also then where we start to see the the anti-Western piece of this come in. Um, the Russian society that exists now is decidedly not communist, but they are anti-Western, and they are a considerable threat to the stability of, of not only uh, uh, our electoral process right now, but the EU as a, as a larger whole. We see the same kinds of behaviors in India and in China and in Iran. And what I want us to be very careful of as we, as we look ahead to the next coming decades is how are we as a society, how are we as a culture and as a polity arming this opposition, this anti-Western foe with our own criticism? I would encourage us to be careful and trenchant and cautious in our self-examination as we go forwards. And maybe worth pursuing next week or another time the self-feeding uh, loop that that very direction gives rise to a second kind of life to communist manifesto thinking. Right. You, you see the echoes of the communist manifesto thinking in the BML, BLMs and the anti-Western movements locally. Absolutely. For Hugh Holman and for Lewis Holman, I'm Seth Liebson, as well as for David Dahl and Mr. Bill. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.